Thank you for listening to the Green Majority Radio Program. Before we get to the show this week, just want to let you know if you're able and willing to help us out, we would appreciate some of your support. It will help us grow and expand our show. You can do that on the website at greenmajority.ca. Welcome, folks. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, in this week and every week here on The Green Majority. Uh, We've got a very busy show, as usual, because there's just so much going on. It's absolutely bonkers. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit uh, about a number of things. We got some uh, some email. We're going to be addressing some email we got that we thought was very interesting. We're going to be talking about uh, the giant boost in renewable energy, $1.3 trillion predicted uh, by strong investment in renewable energy um, by a bunch of sources. We've got uh, pushing ExxonMobil to disclose climate risks. We've got TPP. We've got Kinder Morgan. We've got Montreal Bandit fighting against the energy's pipeline, all sorts of things. It's absolutely bonkers. So there's all that and more coming up in a few minutes. But because we're so tight, I also want to make sure that we get straight to our first guest and that we give our first guest enough time. So we're going to get right to it. Uh, I should have Kat Zavis on the line, who is the executive director of the Network of Spiritual Progressives. We're going to be talking about a couple of things, but primarily something called the Marshall Plan. So welcome to the program, Kat. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about the Marshall Plan largely, and then I have a couple other things we'd like to get to, but we are tight, tight on time, so I want to get right to it. Would you, would you first um, just start a little bit by talking a little bit about your background, a little bit uh, about um, spiritual progressives, just so we know what we're talking about, please? Sure. So I'm trained as a lawyer and have practiced um, law in various civil rights forms as a public defender, as a women's rights lawyer, and then eventually as a a mediator and trainer in in conflict resolution. And throughout all that work, I've also had a deep spiritual practice and connected my activism to spiritual practices and faith. And so I landed at the Network of Spiritual Progressives, which is a perfect fit for me to engage in social change work on a systemic level. And so the Network of Spiritual Progressives is an organization, and it's, it's an outgrowth of Tikkun Magazine, T-I-K-K-U-N, founded by Rabbi Michael Lerner. And the Network of Spiritual Progressives was founded out of Tikkun Magazine, which is an effort to, to heal, repair, and transform the world, as a way to engage the discussions and values of Tikkun in actual activism. And we are trying to build a spiritually progressive social change movement and to create a world based on a new bottom line so that instead of having our institutions, social practices, government government policies and practices and co- even corporations judged efficient, rational, and productive as they currently are by how much they maximize money and power, instead to have them judged efficient, rational, and productive to the extent that they maximize love and care, kindness and generosity, social and economic justice, environmental sustainability, our capacity to respond to each other as embodiments of the sacred, or if that's too woo-woo for some folks, um, our capacity to respond to each other as with great dignity and respect, like with joy, and to just appreciate the value of each other for who we are, not for what we can extract or get from one another. And our capacity to respond to the universe with awe, wonder, and radical amazement, rather than constantly looking to what we can take from it to better our lives. Mm. So that's the overarching principle and goal of the network of spiritual progressive. So one of the, one of the first things um, that I noticed uh, going through um, your website and, and when we were speaking sort of beforehand was, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's sort of funny that you said, <laughs> you know, the word woo, because I think uh, like a lot of the time when people, a certain segment of the population, and, and I would be guilty of being included in that uh, at, from time to time as well. You know, when people talk about, um, you know, we need to you know heal the planet and use a lot sort of very emotional, based language, um, there is a certain segment of the population, and I'm occasionally in that segment of the population, that sort of rolls their eyes and, and thinks, okay, well, that's all well, very nice, but we need an actual plan. And and I think that's 
that's sort of what I really liked about what you're doing was that you sort of it's informed by these sort of uh, emotional or spiritual or sort of ideological sort of like, you know, hope and peace and sort of these bigger concepts. Um, But you've put together an actual practical plan about how to do that. And I thought that was really interesting. So would you please talk about maybe some of the details of the Global Marshall Plan? Sure, thanks. Yeah, we we do try to say that the, these are the overarching principles. And if you think about any of the social change efforts at any time in history, they're all grounded in wanting that world, right? We all want that world. We just don't articulate it. So in addition to putting forth that language and the hope that all social change efforts will start talking about that to unite us, then we also do have some particular plans. One of them, as you mentioned, is the Global Marshall Plan. And the Global Marshall Plan basically says that all industrialized nations, and we can certainly just start with the United States, for example, which is where I'm based, or or Canada, where you guys are based, um, will donate 1% to 2% of their gross domestic product for the next 20 years to to developing, so-called developing countries, and even to inner cities and developing aspects of our own countries, um, or neglected aspects of our own countries, to once and for all eradicate, not just simply alleviate, homelessness, hunger, inadequate health care, inadequate education, um, so that people have their basic needs met and so that resources are redistributed and spent in a way that ensures that everyone has their basic needs met. The, these, this money would not go to the governments of these countries, but to local organizers, local nonprofits, local civic leaders, community members, community organizations that are actually on the ground, in the field, in these communities, doing this work, trying to build sustainable communities. The idea of the Global Marshall Plan is as follows. Again, now I'm stepping out of the particulars into the kind of macro, um, looking at it from a macro level. Currently, we have a, a belief that we will achieve homeland security through domination and power over. And so we go into other countries and we bring wars and we make demands and we control and we take. And and we can see it's not actually working very well. And so the principle behind the Global Marshall Plan is that security comes through generosity, not through domination and control and power over. And if we actually embrace generous policies and principles to these countries and actually genuinely care about the well-being of the people rather than power and money and control then we will have security. And there's been a bunch of really interesting articles and pieces written um, about ISIS, for example, and how they recruit people and the level of anger and disillusionment and hopelessness that people feel. And so they join things such as ISIS um, to feel a sense of community, meaning, purpose, hope, I'm not discounting the horror of what's happening. I'm just wanting to say that we need to look at why it's happening and start to look to address deep-rooted policies and solutions that can start to unravel what's happening around the world. And one of the, I mean, whenever we look into the story of, of sort of most of our global troubles right now, a lot of it comes down to uh, people, you know, instability and, you know, people will say, well, you know, that's, that country is very unstable, so they're very prone to violence. And, and, and it's, it seems to be, you know, it seems to be either, you know, either active in some cases, but in, in many cases also sort of passive racism or passive, um, you know, well, as long as we're fine, we don't care about them. And there, there seems to be this, this really big misunderstanding that we live in a world anymore where we're, we're like we're not on the same planet and like someone else being in a bad situation doesn't affect us and and we might you know there there are certain people in different parts of the political spectrum that might think that they don't have a you know it's not that's their opinion that they don't have a responsibility to have to take care of other people they should have to take care of themselves but it's not really an opinion anymore now we live in a world where we have no choice because them having not enough or them be, someone else's country being unstable affects us and we have to start sort of looking at this collectively or we will never have peace Right. So you can, we can look at it through purely our own self-survival lens and say we clearly need to make changes. And we can also look through it through a, another lens, which is actually we care about each other. And in truth, we do. I mean, in truth, all of us come into the world caring beyond ourselves. No one's born into the world without a mother, without being nurtured 
through the birthing process, and then eventually, once you're born, somehow we're all adequately nurtured so that we can survive. And we have a, a belief, certainly powerful in, in the United States. I've lived in Canada, so a bit less prominent in Canada, but I think it lives there too in the most Western societies of, you know, it's, it's all about me as me first and individualism. And, and if I don't get ahead, someone else is going to get ahead above me and I can't survive. And that mentality doesn't just live within the, the um, borders of our own country, but then it, it, we expand it beyond and then we, and then we stop caring um, because we live in fear and politicians um, promote that. Uh, it's lovely to see Trudeau not promoting that, <laughs> so, promoting a very different worldview. It's, it's lovely to see and very inspiring for us down down south of you all. <laughs> well, Kat, we, we only have a couple more minutes, so I want to ask you about a couple other things. Um, one of them was just something else specific about the Marshall Plan, which was um, sort of where are you at right now with that as far as a campaign? Are you talking to politicians? Are you talking to other um, faith and community groups? Sort of where where is the, where is the uh, advocacy for this plan right now? Right. So the Global Marshall Plan has been introduced in the past in the U.S. Congress as a resolution. Um, and so we're continuing to push to get it reintroduced. It has to be reintroduced every single year. Um, and so we're working on that. And then we're working in communities trying to get local communities to get their city council members or their church or their faith group or their social change organization to endorse it, to try to build a movement. And part of the idea behind this proposal, the Global Marshall Plan, and another one that I'll just name in case people want to check it out on our website, the Environmental Social Responsibility Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which can be adapted to the Canadian, appropriate Canadian um, constitutional issues. Um, the idea behind these is raising consciousness, getting people to talk about what is the world that we want to live in and how can we actually get there, because they're not realistic. And so I can imagine listeners thinking, oh, forget, that's not, never going to happen. Um, but no great social change has happened with being realistic. Abolition didn't happen from realism. Um, the, the shift, dramatic shift in gay and lesbian rights in this country, and, and now everyone can get married, didn't happen with people being realistic. So the idea is to be unrealistic, to push for what we really want, instead of settling for what we think is politically possible and expedient. Well, I can certainly give you a hear here on that one. <laughs> uh, so we're down to our, just our last couple of minutes, and, and I always like to end on a sort of very meta note. So I, I want to ask you, you know, we do, we do occasionally, but we don't make a, frequently make a habit of sort of talking about the environment from a faith or a spiritualism point of view. And one of them is that, you know, we just, it's, it's, it's easier not to get into it because it can sometimes be a point of contention for people. So I generally stay away from it. But in here, you've been, you've made an effort to be sort of very, very inclusive to the point that it's, it specifically says on your website that you've sort of chosen the word spiritual because it's, it's not about even people who are religious. It's basically just about, you know, it's making it essentially a, a, a secular and religious appeal to sort of just general ethics. And do you want to just talk a little bit about that angle and that approach that you're taking? Sure. Yeah. What we say is if you want this world that we're talking about based on a new bottom line, then you fit our definition of spiritual because those are, as you put, put it, ethical values and principles. Those are right now the capitalist worldview, the capitalist ethos is really a religion. We are, we are steeped deeply in a belief that this is the way the world is and the way it should be and the way it has to be and it's always been and it will always continue to be. And, and so we're offering an entirely different lens and an entirely different worldview. And because there's so, on the left, this is not so true on the left, right, but because on the left there's so much resistance and fear to anything, anything that's spiritual or religious, um, we want to help people start to see that there's ethical values that we all share that are really, that if we start to articulate our desires and our wants and our proposals from those positions, we'll actually bring people from the right into our movement as well. Because one of the reasons they turned away, one of the reasons people vote against their economic interests is because no one's speaking to their deep needs for meaning and purpose in life, for their deep belief in there's something greater than themselves, whatever that is, however you define that. Um, and so that's why we are, and this is, I mean, this is a much longer conversation. This was done in long-term research. So this isn't just being set out of 
nothing. There's actually it was long-term research, and you can get the book, The Left-Handed God, Taking Back Our Country from the Religious Right by Rabbi Michael Lerner, and learn more about that if you want. But, but um, it's important to use, to use this language because we will reach a much broader population. All right. Well, I think that's a really good place to um, to leave it. I want to thank you so much for your time, uh, Kat. Uh, again, we've been speaking to Kat Zavis, the executive director for the Network of Spiritual Progressives. And you can check out uh, the Global Marshall Plan and the rest of their resources at spiritualprogressives.org. We'll also link off the website as well. Was there anything else I missed there, Kat? No, thank you. And just I just want to be clear, Spiritual Progressives with an S at the end, .org. Sometimes that gets hard to okay. hear. Thank <laughs> yes. you so much, Darren. Absolutely. And, and of course, there'll be links on, on today's show post as well for our listeners. So thanks so much for your time. Uh, thank you. And uh, we're going to go now. Um, Alex is in the booth over there. He's programmed our first music break. Alex, what are we going to be listening to? Uh, hey, Darren. The first song we're going to be listening to is uh, by a band called Winter Sleep out of Halifax. Uh, they're an awesome band that I've been following for o- almost 10 years, and they're just coming out with a new album March 4th, um, and this song's called America. So we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and now internationally as well, uh, or part of our new uh, audience at uh, the Rabble Podcast Network, actually, which is growing uh, quite quickly, I might add. Thanks so much to the folks, uh, both uh, the folks at Rabble and the uh, the consumers of Rabble content uh, for joining us here on uh, on the podcast version as well. All our wonderful listeners are equally appreciated no matter where they are. Uh, and what is also appreciated on that note, so we've got a bunch of news we want to get to as well, but um, there was also something else. We got some some listener email, and I won't call it fan mail. It's um, definitely not fan mail. No. <laughs> but I appreciate it all the same, because if, if, you know, occasionally people, you know, we get email all the time. If somebody just emails me and is like, you're a moron, damn hippies, then whatever, I don't care. <laughs> but if somebody actually, you know, puts together and it makes an actual argument, then occasionally I will uh, enjoy responding to it. And, and then in this case... Um, uh, I felt I felt it was worth some some address, so we're going to go through it. I'm basically going to read the email, and then we're going to say everything that we think was wrong with it. Um, and the reason for that was that was that the reason started with, and I'll just read the first uh, sentence here. And of course, we're not going to say who this was because it doesn't matter. But I am going to read the email because I think the phrasing is important. So this is the email here, the first sentence. Uh, Hi, I feel compelled to respond to some points made during the discussions of the morning. I would have been more satisfied if there was at least one voice of reason on the show to provide counterpoints. But here we go. So let me start there for a minute. If you want to have reasonable discussion with somebody and have them actually listen and answer to you, try not insulting them in the opening paragraph. <laughs> um, that might be that might be a place to start. Just that's more of a style comment, really, than right, anything yeah, else. Not 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 so fact based. But there we go. Next sentence. I'm not your typical right winger. Yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in effect, if that's a point of contention for the person that wrote it, I would like to know how they define typical right winger and how they differ from it. Yeah, if they if they, if they define typical right winger, whoever that person is, I don't even know where. Like, you'll understand why why we say this later on in the email. Uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> we're coming to that. Yes, but we're just, we're doing it in order. Uh, being very well informed on the issues. Uh, having an, a geology degree from a liberal arts university and having seen firsthand the subtle effects of global warming. Okay, well, here's another couple of points of contention. Uh, your geology degree is completely irrelevant um, <laughs> and is no more valid than my culinary degree uh, as to your opinion on climate change. So there we go. Um, it's gradually happening, there's no doubt. Mm, I see how you snuggly stuck the word gradually in there. Yeah. Um, you are not an expert on climate change. We're going to get to more evidence of that in a minute. Um, but what I wanted to point out, like the reason we're reading this is not just to mock this person. The reason that I felt this was worth addressing was because I think this person represents the type of opinion that a lot of people have. And we just wanted to point out that it's wrong. And not <laughs> not that this person is stupid. Right. Not that we hate this person right. or have any ill will towards this person whatsoever. But they are simply factually in error. And those and those factual errors matter. Right, and and it and it accounts for our disagreeing on things. Uh, there's that famous line, uh, Stephen Colbert, I think it was, uh, uh, "Facts have a well-known liberal bias." Yes. Uh, in this case, this is the case. Um, 
so back to the email now. If it was not from any counteracting forces like the cooling effects provided by vapor trails of commercial airliners uh, and the increase of CO2 intake from plants, we would be in bigger trouble. Okay, first of all, I very nearly went off on a like vapor trail yeah, chemtrail let's thing. Let's avoid that. But that's avoid not that. what it was. We're avoiding that. Let's be clear. That's not what this person was saying. Yes. It's, I went there for a second, but that's not where they were no. going. Okay. So we could get into the actual um, uh, science of it. And, of course, Stefan pointed out that they forgot um, aerosols. Uh, but I just want to, because we can't, we're not going to do an entire scientific class on climate change today. Um, I want to just do this from an argumentative point of view, which was your particular version of climate change. You're saying that there's a scientific error with the uh, results of the opinion on climate change. Okay, we get our opinion on what the dangers of climate change are from the vast majority of experts. And by vast majority, there's a frequently misstated percentage, which says that people say 97% of all climate scientists believe that climate change is both real and a dangerous threat and human that's actually wrong. It's misquoted all the time. It's 97% of the research is in support of it. 99.4% of scientists, which is another interesting factor because that also means that 0.6% of scientists producing almost the, the ones that disagree are producing almost 3% of the research. And I would say in many of those cases, although I can't prove which ones, so I can't say that for hmm. libelous purposes, <laughs> um, but it would seem to me that those are the ones that are being paid to produce as much content as possible. I think that's a fair, at least potential assessment of that fact. So what you have to say if you're doing this is you, you have to, if for this person's point of view to be correct, um, what you would have to be saying, there is no way to escape the fact that you have to be claiming a giant global conspiracy well, well, in case for this to be in real. Well, and if that's what you're doing, then I'm just going to email you your tinfoil hat and we're done because I'm not having a conversation about giant global conspiracies involving millions of people. Right. But, but, but give, this, give, the, give the email credit. He's accepting climate change. In, in his world, it's a, it's a, climate change is a gradual thing. It's, it's, he's accepting that it exists. It's just not as big of a threat as we think it is. Right. So the same evidence that this person would use to conclude that climate change is real is also the same research that completely <laughs> differs with conclusion about the, the risk. Well, and yes. so you don't get to pick and choose what you believe. And, and I would put forward that it's, I think it's very likely this is someone that years ago would have said climate change doesn't exist. And it's just been so beaten over the head by reality that right. they've been backed into this slightly weakened position. I don't know, but that's my opinion. But let's, let's move yes, on to keep pace. Uh, I sent some great satisfaction with the non-approval of the Keystone. I'm just going to go through the next paragraph here. You'll, you'll know when I'm done reading the email. I sent some great dissatisfaction with the non-approval of the Keystone X pipeline. I'm deeply saddened to see your lack of recognition that this have largely happened to suit the investment needs of a large-scale benefactor of the Dem Party, Warren Buffett, because of his purchase of the rail line that now transports most of the oil sands to crude distribution centers. Yes, you were duped into helping a train baron. Interesting point of fact. What else does Warren Buffett own? Uh, Warren Buffett is a large investor in tar sands. Oh, snap. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, oh, here's, also, here's uh, the thing. Rich people have investments all over the place. Uh, yeah, the other thing about it is he also came out in support of Keystone XL. Uh, now, now, you obviously you could argue that uh, that that was a, a smokescreen for his actual goal to shut down it and then get his train money, uh, but that's that he, he he is on record saying he supported Keystone XL. Yeah, and so once again, I just want to like point out the, the only way for these facts to sort out is that you're claiming a giant conspiracy. So we're back in giant conspiracy uh, lizard people territory. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be insulting, but that's really where you are if you're making these types of arguments. My, my favorite thing about, about right-wing right -wing people is that left-wing billionaires are amazing <laughs> in their minds. Like the fact that, you know, fact that Warren Buffett and, uh, and the other left-wing billionaires control so much of this world is really just like, they're, yeah. they're really kind of bad at it, as we'll see later on in the if show. If the Koch brothers were half as clever as Warren Buffett, I mean, this would be over. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so we may not even get to all through this because I want to yeah. make sure we, we speed through this real quick. Um, but uh, so by targeting, so back to the email now. By targeting the oil sands, green interests have now forced to break even down point, uh, break uh, to break even point down on oil sands projects, that it's not just the oil price largely driven by Iran flooding the market. That's actually real. Except Part that it's that Saudi Arabia. Uh, no, well, Iran, <laughs> now that the right. nuclear deal has gone through, is, is in fact adding to the um, uh, amount of cheap oil, which is in fact driving the oil price down. That's irrelevant from any of these other things. Well, that not to, simply, yes, that happened. Well, not That's to mention thing that, that happened in reality. Not to mention that the price of oil has been low for the last year and a half and the sanctions ended last week. Right, right. No, but it's it's a contributing factor, and and so there we go. So, uh, but also the economics of billions of dollars of oil since projects. So, yes, 
Yes, what you're describing now is reality. Oil, oil now is causing a huge contributor to the cause, not the only one, but it's a huge contributor to climate change. Countries and people, based on the reality of the scientific research, is taking this into acknowledgement, and so we're trying to phase out that investment. Yes, that, that's what you do. That's what you do if you accept reality of climate change. This is the, you're just describing reality. <laughs> Why should I or anyone else care, care about the feels, uh, feasibility of oil sands projects? If you were married and had children to support, you might think twice about, okay, so here we go about blah, 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 blah. Here's another silly argument, and I, I made this argument recently on Twitter. For, so first of all, um, if we're talking about the continued survival of, of life on this planet, uh, the short-term implications of jobs is not as important. That doesn't mean I don't care about those people, and that doesn't mean that jobs aren't important. It does mean that we have to have a, a comparable priorities. Point one. Point two is guess what renewable energy types of skills they need. They need engineers. They need people who can build things. They need welders. They need people who can drill holes in the ground for geothermal energy. All of the jobs that people have in the oil sands, basically every single last one of them is directly transferable to a renewable energy job, which, by the way, I can drown you in paperwork about how much more money that that contributes both to our uh, national personal economy and the global economy and the general health because we have a... Uh, a, a public health care system in this country that all the health costs. So basically, um, you're turning away being drowned in free money by refusing to think outside of this tiny little confine you've made for yourself. D d environmentalists don't just want to shut down oil. They want to incentivize other things instead. And it turns out that the reality it asserts itself is that those alternatives are actually better for the jobs and economy in the first place. So I'm sorry, strike three on that one. <laughs> And blah, blah, blah. And there's a bunch of other stuff about here about people, look, uh, being, you know, out of bankruptcy and stuff. We care. This is better for them. And it happens to save our long-term future. Um, and so just skimming now to the end. This is pretty much all that there was. Yeah, the rest was just really just about... Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so there's a bunch of other stuff. So, and, and basically, the, the end of the email is that are, you know, accusing us of being some part of conspiracy. Uh, I, I'm 33 years old, and I have a roommate. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not married, and I'm still drowning in student loans. If I'm on the take from some sort of giant, uh, giant conspiracy... I'm really, really doing it wrong, and you're free to believe that if you wish. Uh, well, well, as Kevin says, uh, big kale pays really well, yes. just not as much as a real job. Well, no, he's basically accusing us of being on the take of Warren Buffett. Yes. And if so, Warren, I'm still waiting for my check, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so there we go. So, I mean, yes, we were dealing with that a little bit silly, and I want to leave it there. But first of all, starting your email with what you're not a typo, <laughs> typical right-winger, and then... Being a typical right winger for the entire email is just silly. But second of all, you're simply this is a case of somebody who's probably very earnest. I, I personally have no problem with it whatsoever, but they're simply misinformed. And the reason we're not having a conversation is that this person has decided in advance that we are we are making our decisions for emotional reasons mm. and and therefore has not even bothered to find out what the responses to their positions are. And that's why I thought it was important to address this, even though we did it in a little bit of a silly way. And I admit that I was being a little bit mocking when I was doing it. <laughs> a but little the fact bit, is, like that, that, your little bit is like his gradually. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Uh, but the point here is that if we were actually having a dialogue, if we mm. are actually having a conversation where we got to say, OK, well, why do you think that we would find out very quickly? Where the where the preponderance of the evidence lies, and I and I apologize, but the emailer in this place is the one who is simply misinformed about reality, and that is the thing that makes all of the rest of this make sense. Mm -hmm. If they just realize they're just factually incorrect about a bunch of stuff, right? Uh, so let me jump in here uh, because I think the very one of the very last two lines was something about how uh, please respond to this in a real way. Oh yes, sorry. Uh, rather than reacted uh, the very last line of the email, rather than reacting with the standard well trained lines, please give this some serious thought. Yeah. Okay. And so I went out and did that. Uh, as 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 Emma will attest, uh, I I basically we were supposed to up with something else, and I made her try to explain to me what her best argument for Keystone XL was for an hour. Because uh, when I went out, my goal was uh, like I spent literally about a week uh, asking everyone I could uh, to because I was like, all right, what would be the version of me giving this the best amount of thought I could? And so I, was, I just want to uh, jump in and say it didn't take me an hour to put forward my best argument. No. I ran out of arguments after about two or three or four <laughs> minutes. Yes. Uh, um, we then just, yeah, then we carried on. Uh, fair enough. Uh, but what I want to say, like, so I was like, all right, what is the closest I can come to really giving this in serious thought? And I came up with, well, let's come up with the strongest possible argument I can make for case on Excel. That seems like a reasonable way to do this. So Stefan's, the email you could have written, should have written. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I, I titled it Do the Trolling for You. Uh, so there's a couple things first. Uh, the, I, there's one, I sort of broke this down to different suppositions because there's sort of the question of even how, whether or not you support Keystone XL, are you arguing it from the Canadian perspective, the American perspective, the global perspective? There's a whole bunch of other things. Uh, the one perspective that I refuse to accept, uh, or that I, is that climate change is not happening. 
Climate change is happening, everybody. I did not. I did not. I'm not tackling that one in this in this short little segment. Um, so uh, let's start with the, uh, some. Let's start with the argument. First things first. We still need oil tomorrow. If all oil stopped tomorrow, uh, our economy would shut down, unquestionably. Uh, and in a certainly longer term, uh, you know, with jet fuel and cargo ship fuel, uh, and then synthetics and plastics. There are still uses for oil, even in a slightly longer term. Short to medium term, we will need oil. Uh, whether or not you take oil from, then so, so like, and so arguing for oil in the short medium term is actually relatively easy. Uh, is a necessity argument basically, uh, which I'm not going to try to fight. Uh, arguing for Keystone is way harder. I discovered as I started started working through this because the problem with Keystone is it comes from the tar sands, and then the tar sands are incredibly carbon intensive compared to a lot of the other oils. Uh, and so that was where I that was where I actually got stuck to some extent uh, because it's really relatively easy to argue for why oil should exist in the short to medium future uh, and as act as a transition to, as we transition off it. That's but why Keystone XL is a whole different battle. So. Uh, Let's start with arguments I didn't end up choosing. Uh, one, uh, there are already so many pipelines, one more is nothing. It's a pretty common one. Uh, it's sort of this like, well, we've accepted 1,700 other ones. Why is Keystone XL special? And the answer is it's not. Uh, it was special because, uh, well, it was special because we happened to have a, lever, a lever, leverage point. Uh, and Camfen has a fan, I think it's Camfen or someone uh, who was fighting on this, uh, had a fantastic article about the three, four months ago, uh, about why Keystone XL was so important, uh, and it was all about removing the requirements, removing the expectation of acceptance of, uh, of, of, of oil infrastructure. Uh, so I didn't use that one. Uh, second one, uh, which, uh, which actually uh, he got the, uh, the email actually to get into, which we didn't read, uh, which is, China isn't doing enough, so why should we? Uh, again, not accepting that as an argument. Uh, you can use that if you like, but that's sort of, that's, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fly. Honestly, uh, it's like your neighbor's house is burning. So why would you make sure your so why would you make sure your stove is off when you leave the house? Doesn't make sense. Uh, it's an unsafe way to live. Uh, so sorry. Uh, the third uh, what I'm, I refuse to take is that our, our oil is ethical uh, <laughs> because uh, as much as as much as Esther Levant and his lovely folks uh, at Ethical Oil might want to argue, it's it's not like. Large oil companies are, exist all over the world. Uh, don't get me started. What's happening in the Nigerian Delta? Uh, the people who are involved in here uh, just, you know, they're they, you know they're not better. At least not in a way that uh, is going to convince me not to. So the ones I didn't use. So now, except so here's my best argument. Uh, first one: If we are not moving to a, to a lower low carbon economy, uh, which is an ex, which is theoretically an argument you could have. Uh, that's the presupposition one. Uh, if you want to go that way, uh, then oddly enough, it's the easiest because it just means that the world's going to just keep getting warmer uh, outside of geoengineering. Uh, and so oil demand will stay, will stay high. So the Keystone investment makes sense for all parties. Uh, we're going to need the oil, the oil money to pay for the climate adaption techniques and our suddenly very important space program uh, because that's, that's basically it. If you accept that one, let's move on to that one because that one most people aren't arguing. Uh, two. Uh, we're moving towards a low-carbon economy, from, but arguing from the American perspective, uh, because, again, this was an American decision. Uh, oil, sec oil security is obviously the first one, getting harder given the other, all the other sort of excess, the, 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 the more and more oil they actually managed to find, and the increase, of course, fracking uh, and natural gas. However, you could still, any more oil coming from, from Canada is more oil you don't have to get from other parts of the world, so oil security is a half-season place to start. Uh, and if the goal is to move to a low-carbon economy, uh, we should be supporting the oil companies that are sort of are investing already in transition fuels as well. Uh, you know, so if you say you want to be, you want to support Suncor instead of instead of one that's not, uh, you know, because Suncor is is at least an energy company, I put that in quotes, rather than an oil company. Not really accurate right now, but you could if again, I'm making the best guess I can. Uh, and a lot of the tar, a lot of the tar sand companies are that are calling themselves energy companies and trying to sort of pretend they're doing some other sort of stuff or are doing some other stuff because I'm again trying to make this argument. Uh, the third uh, is that oil will still be brought from the, uh, from the tar stands into the United States uh, and unquestionably uh, uh, trains are more dangerous than, than pipelines. Uh, and, you know, you also get, to, you got to get the benefit of also not supporting Mr. Buffett. Uh, which apparently is very important. I think this guy just really hates Warren Buffett. I think that's really what it is. 
Um, so that's for the American perspective. The last one I looked at uh, was we're moving to a low carbon economy, uh, but from the Canadian perspective, because that's the th- that's the that's the last option. Uh, and again, it in some way ties back into this into this guy's argument, which is that yeah, right now Alberta's economy is incredibly reliant on oil. Uh, that's unquestionable. Uh, I think right now we actually we are in a, kind of a, a friend of mine put it this way, and we have an opportunity to hit the reset button on on Alberta's economy right now uh, because of how little money they're making in oil, uh, and an actual investment there could actually do a fantastic. You actually could just reset their entire economy to some extent because of, because of how, much, how much no money they're making in oil right now. Uh, but leave that aside. Uh, and so, if Trans Canada was building this pipeline, would increase the GDP, and we could actually, and you actually, Alberta actually did what, say, Norway has done, and build up a sovereign wealth fund to some extent, and then use that for transitionary uh, purposes. Again, would be helpful. They didn't do that for the last for all, all the money they're making the last twenty years, so I'm not really confident they would do that. But that would be another option. Um, and then also, Keystone XL would reduce the need for some of the other pipelines that were that were sort of even more controversial. Uh, you know, Keystone XL was almost entirely built. So if you're arguing versus that versus Energy East or uh, or um, not Northern Gateway, the third one, uh, Kinder Morgan, uh, it's 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 less disruptive uh, from an environmental standpoint. Uh, and then uh, again, the last one is just again oil security, but with Canada decreases our need for foreign oil uh, and would drive up our dollar to some extent. So if you if 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 anyone wants to come and yell at us uh, about um, uh, about supporting Keystone XL, please use any and all of those arguments. Uh, I had one I had one last one, uh, which was from the perspective that you live on a small island Pacific nation. Uh, which just says, what are you thinking? Don't build the goddamn thing, in all capital letters. Uh, but that obviously is not a part of this one. All right, so there we go. Uh, so those are the best arguments you could make for the Keystone XL, and we could make a, many of those for many other pipelines. So uh, if you if you have an argument that's not on that list, please don't, because it's going to be worse than those. And if you think any of those arguments are actually convincing... Give us your best shot, but I guarantee you we have an answer for you. Uh, so we're going to go to our second and final music break now. And then Stefan and I are actually going to stop talking. We have uh, uh, Brenna Owen, who's uh, one of our new co-hosts in the studio as well, uh, with M.A. Ma, who's been sitting here uh, patiently listening to us ramble on. They're going to be taking over now after the, a very short music break. So you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And our wonderful community and very appreciated partners and podcasters will be right back after this music break. And we are back now live CIUT. We're listening to The Green Majority. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, but I've been talking enough today, so I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to pass it over to M.A. Ma, who's going to lead uh, herself and Brenna Owen, our new co-host, in a new section. Take it away, M.A. Yeah, so we're actually going to pick up on a lot of the themes that you guys have been discussing in the last section of the show. And we're going to start off by talking about the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. It's been getting a lot of coverage this past week. And interestingly enough, or strategically, I should say, Oxfam actually released a report um, timing it with the Davos Forum, which has been touted as a a gathering of the world's political and economic elite. But the Oxfam report actually speaks to the growing inequality that we know is happening in our world. And one of the key figures that's highlighted in the report is that 62 people, Oxfam says, own the same wealth as half the planet. So when we're talking about the kind of economy we want to build, that's something I think that's, that is a very, very stark reminder of, of the reality that we're living in. The report continues to go on to say that the wealth of the poorest half of the world's population, so that's more than 3.6 billion people, has fallen by a trillion dollars, or 41%, since 2010. And so this argument, talking about countering arguments that there's there's just infinite amount of wealth to be made. And so having the world's 62 wealthiest people increase in their their share of the wealth doesn't mean that they're taking away from the, the poorest segment of the population. It doesn't seem to be ringing true. What do you think, Brenna? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm reflecting on what Darren had said. Uh, facts have a, a well-known liberal bias and, and um, you know, that even when we're talking about realities on the ground, like um, responses to those realities are, are ideological. Um, talking about income inequality and the systems that have produced that, it's, you know, come from the same systems of oppression that have produced tar sands, oil, and, uh, yeah. So at this, this lovely elite gathering... Not my words, <laughs> uh, which is held at a ski resort every year. Um, we had our new prime minister, Justin Trudeau, make some remarks to the, the delegation there. And he said the following thing. 
My predecessor wanted you to know Canada for its resources. I want you to know Canadians for our resourcefulness. I have heard this clip so many times played on air over the last week that I'm frankly quite sick of it. But for me, that was just a very sort of common sense remark. Um, it had sort of an injection of hope, perhaps, that we wouldn't be known or continue to be known internationally just as a resource-based economy, that maybe there was something new in the offing. Um, yet a lot of the commentary that, that's come you know, through the media has really come with a lot of criticism of these remarks and almost implied that it, in, in the context of dropping oil prices and rising unemployment in provinces like Alberta that are dependent on oil and gas, that these remarks were almost insensitive and not supportive. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's it seems almost ironic to me because um, just returning from COP21 in Paris, where uh, mainstream Canadian media was largely in favor of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's quote-unquote Canada is back narrative of Canada being a very diplomatic nation um, and and Stephen Harper for the last 10 years having undermined that, um, that, you know, we're back with Trudeau's sunny ways. And so it is ironic, you know, and it, it, it it's funny how um, Canada's back was picked up on so heavily by the media and now resourcefulness is being picked up in, in a almost from the opposite perspective, um, I suppose, because of the, uh, I guess, human appeals coming out of Alberta around equalization payments and, and around um, the, the price of oil right now. Um, so it is interesting how, uh, you know, Trudeau's kind of swaying in the wind in the media a little bit. <laughs> well, and, and as a quick aside, uh, just jump in there for half a second. Uh, it's, it's 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 very typical of the media to try to create a fight of some nature, I think. And it's like, oh, he said this comment, what news story can we run? And there's two options for that conversation, right? One is what is an actually a mate, what would a resourceful Canada look like? And one is let's get a bunch of people angry about this comment. Uh, one of those is useful, one of those is not. Uh, guess which one we choose? Yes, and but to counter that, I would say that there's there is a very harsh reality that's happening, right? And I I want to just recognize my privilege as a person residing in Ontario whose job is not tied to the oil and gas sector. So you know, one thing that reflected this reality was that um, an oil patch worker recently shared a social media post that accuses Justin Trudeau of ignoring Alberta's economic plan and and sort of pleads for help during this economic slump. So that is the reality of a lot of people. I I personally reject the notion that we can say that Justin Trudeau very early on mm -hmm. in his tenure is somehow responsible for Alberta putting all its eggs in the oil and gas basket. That was, that was very much driven by the previous federal government and previous Alberta governments. However, we have to have a, we have to have some sympathy um, for Canadians whose employment has been compromised or is is jeopardized by what's happening um, with the tar sands and the falling price of oil, and we've got to also provide them with some transition support. What do you think about that, Brenna? How how does that kind of um, strategy need to come into play here? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm a little bit concerned about, obviously, is that um, Prime Minister Trudeau is speaking about resourcefulness. And, and we have seen him, you know, he recently visited, visited Mars Discovery District here in Toronto, as well as um, giving money to some innovation initiatives in Waterloo. So, you know, there is a, a lot of thinking around Canada being behind on the innovation front. Obviously, my mind jumps to us being behind on developing renewables um, and some of providing transition assistance to workers, as Darren mentioned earlier in the show, who um, could easily transfer their skills. Like, it's not that those jobs are becoming irrelevant. It's not that those skills are becoming irrelevant. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, the the lack of, um, just as when the Trudeau government signed on to um, the 1.5 degree commitment in Paris, how are we going to actually do that? Like, where is the national strategy? And so it's funny that, you know, as a person concerned about climate justice, I would like to see a plan. And then this oil patch worker like, would also like to see a plan. And obviously our plans differ, but... Yeah. Um, I just, I, there's just one little thing that I want to jump in. It was just that this, this... I feel like it's just a classic conservative mindset that, you know, preparing for bad times or helping people who are bad, uh, helping people who are in a bad way is not necessary until that person is you. 
Uh, and so, like, it's this weird. I ha- always have this weird, difficult time. Where it's like, yes, I, like my empathy. I yes, I do want a stronger social safety net. I do want these sort of, all these sort of things. You voted against them for twenty years when times were good. Uh, you know, like you could have done this, you chose not to. And I'm not saying the person who wrote this letter is the is that person. Very obviously, um, and uh, there's a whole bunch of very valid uh, people who just you know were looking for a job and found a job. That's uh, that's a vast percentage of the people, especially you know uh, when people came from the East Coast to go to Alberta to find a job because that's where they get jobs. That's not their fault. But at the same time, it's like, okay, like as Alberta as a as a like as a political agency to some extent is sort of like you guys just didn't do what you sh- everyone told you should do and now what we told you is happening is happening and now you're like you're not doing enough for us yes and and so we do know that Canada has lost its share in renewables um, that share has that market share has gone down and that vision has been absent and I just want to contrast this with a bit of uh, reporting that's coming out of the US this was reported by CNN CNN So here we had a brief problem with the show file. Unfortunately, folks, there's no way to fix it, but we pick up the conversation only about 40 seconds later right here. Uh, In terms of um, people who who feel strongly uh, against change, I think it's like a visceral and emotional and ideological response. Um, And and yeah, I guess my my quote of the day is definitely the facts have a a, a well-known liberal bias (laughs) because um, we we know what it what needs to be done in order to affect a just transition. And I think that's another important point to make is like, you know, um, Suncor could be a major like solar company in 25 years, but they could still be appropriating indigenous land to <laughs> to make energy. So, I, I, you know, how we implement renewables is also important. So we're thinking about that as well. Yeah. And I just want to I want to bring up a very important news item and give it a little bit of time. And that's that the city of Montreal and the surrounding communities have come out swinging against the Trans Canada Corporation's Energy East pipeline. And many of these discussion threads have come to the forefront around basically the Montreal area being, um, you know, projected as stifling economic development in the West at a time when people are struggling. And the, as you mentioned earlier, Brenna, the topic of equalization payments have come out and it's become this very sort of divisive national dialogue um, very, very rapidly. And what's not being discussed is the right of people from these 82 communities, which were represented in the statement of having the right to self-determination and saying that they don't want a pipeline running through their land, whether it's for public safety reasons or for climate reasons. Um, But instead, what we're seeing is this very divisive dialogue. How do we, Darren, do you have any thoughts about how we transition from that kind of dialogue to really bringing what are the critical issues to the forefront, not not, uh, downplaying the employment issue in Alberta, but how do we change the framework in terms of the discussion? Well, yeah, and thank you for that. I, I wanted to, to chip something in on that. A- anyway, just really, because we're talking a little bit about sort of like having dialogue today. So like, what the plan is to solve it, I, I, I don't really know other than to sort of broadcast. And I think I think people on our side, and by our side, I mean the sort of like, you know, for fact and science-based environmentalists, as opposed to, you know, an idiot, an environment, environmental ideology sort of point of view or anything else was that the number one response that I get and the number one interaction I have with people who who I have disagreement about these issues with was is the second they've established that I have a difference of opinion about anything having to do with the environment I'm immediately attacked uh, by attacking Justin Trudeau as if I care and and what that tells me is that you, there, the vast majority of the opposition to the types of arguments we're making, the arguments themselves, the actual substance, the actual science and, and facts around the things that we're talking about are not even being listened to because the number one reason why people are disagreeing with us is because they think that by because we don't agree with them that we're therefore supporting liberals and that you're just an ideological liberal the same way that – and I think this is projection – the person on the other side is simply an ideological conservative. The, when you actually get down to what is real, we, you know, we want to, by we again, I mean, you know, fact and science-based environmentalism, wants to have a conversation about how to solve problems. If people that identify as conservatives want to propose 
alternate solutions that also fit within the framework of demonstrable reality, I want to hear what those proposals are. And I am absolutely willing to have a conversation about maybe their plan is better than mine. I don't care who the plan comes from. The only thing I'm not willing to have a conversation about is something that is demonstrably not based on reality. And until we can break through this noise about people assuming what the other person has to say, and that's why we took the time to talk about this email today, and actually talk about, well, what do you think? Can you prove it? And, and upon what are you basing your comments? And, and is that reliable? And are we dealing with actual problems? We can't talk about solutions. And until that point, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forward my solution because you aren't proposing a solution that's based on reality. If you want to have an actual conversation and put forward an, an alternate solution that's also based on reality, then I'm totally willing to have a conversation. And, and it just gets me really frustrated. And so I think, I think at this point we need to do a better job of saying, forget about your politics. I don't care what party you are. And stop assuming that I'm a liberal just because I disagree with you. I have no love for the liberal party. I have a love for science, facts, and reality. And we need to make the conversation about that. It, what concerns me, though, about this particular conversation is this regional divide. So pitting provinces or printing municipalities against one another. So the very popular mayor of Calgary, Nenshi, um, who's got a massive social media following on his Twitter account, has come out and made remarks that Montreal's mayor, Coderre, does not know what he's talking about, that, of course, he knows that pipelines are far safer than moving things by rail, and that we're talking about moving, you know, Canadian oil as if that is if that matters. And, you know, that's, again, back to the framing of the discussion. Those That's not addressing the broader issue um, that this oil ultimately needs to st stay in the ground or a very large proportion of it. So instead, the conversation's being shifted towards domestic, protecting our domestic interests and how, you know, uh, Montreal's not, not coming to the table and not supporting um, its, its neighbors in Alberta and instead of having the real conversation that we're supposed to be having. But I want to just raise one really important point because, you know, I think, I think there is sort of a glimmer of hope in the way that municipalities are responding to these pipelines issues. So last year we saw that the municipality of Burnaby in B.C. had, you know, had mounted a challenge to Kinder Morgan. And the challenge was based on the fact that it argued that the National Energy Board should not have, did not, does not have the constitutional power to direct or limit the enforcement of the municipal bylaws. And so they didn't actually win this court challenge, I should say. However, the door was kind of left open because the judge did not actually rule on the whole complete issue of constitutional jurisdiction. So when we're looking at municipal, municipalities sort of stepping up to the plate and saying, actually, we do get a say on pipelines uh, moving through our area, through our communities, to me, this gives me hope. Do you, do you guys think that I'm this is false hope or that I'm overstating the role that municipalities can play in this picture? Really quickly, I've seen nothing but a giant snowball effect. We've seen uh, winning court cases. We've seen the, the five people let off in the necessity defense. Uh, the world leaders all around the world talking about change, even if even if the policies they're proposing to deal with that change are grossly insufficient compared to their rhetoric. Um, I, I see us right now on a very moment in a very significant state of momentum. Uh, and I am uh, on the very optimistic end of cautiously optimistic at this time. At this time. So, yes, speaking of optimism, Darren, you flagged up that uh, there was a ruling on a case that we've been following, and I'm going to actually flip it over to Stefan to talk about that ruling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the greatest thing about this ruling, or the second greatest thing about this ruling, uh, is that... Maybe it, explain what the case was. For sure, briefly. of course. Yeah, so this was a Delta 5 case we referenced last week. Uh, there were five people stopped a, a train of, I believe, coal. I'd have to re go back and listen to last week's, last week's show. Uh, it was cool or oil. Um, and they and they and they tried to use a necessity defense, which ultimately was actually sort of judged that in the end, it actually was sort of pitched that they weren't necessarily allowed to use the defense. Uh, but uh, they, the good news is that they were is that they got off to some extent. Well, they're not facing jail time, and they cannot get financial restitution expectations on them. Um, uh, specifically, they were still they were still found guilty of trespassing. Uh, but uh, the way that happened was that they still that's the only thing they were still found guilty of. They and they they will. They will walk. They are free to go, basically. Uh, and so, uh, but the good news about this, well, two is one, as I mentioned, as I teased earlier, uh, it happened in the world's in a county with the world's greatest name, uh, which is Snohomish. Uh, Snohomish County uh, is where this occurred. Um, and I, just to 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 somebody end the show on a high note, I want to read what the judge said uh, said then, uh, which was that. 
so on the the Snohomish County judge Anthony Howard um, said that while uh, while again while explaining to them that he just wasn't really sure whether or not they were allowed to actually use a necessity defense in this case said frankly the court is convinced that the defendants are far from the problem and are part of the solution to the problem of climate change. All right, we're right up against the end of the show. I want to let you know, if you're listening to the podcast or you want to, we're going to be right back with the bonus show, but that's it for the live radio broadcast. You've been listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. Have a good Green Week, folks. We'll see you all real soon. It is time now for the bonus show. Just a quick message about two things. One, we just had a terrible week for audio problems this week. I, I do apologize again. It was a, much of it was beyond our control. Some of it has to do with our equipment. So if you enjoy the show and you'd like to see us grow and continue to get better, a great way to help out and help us fix these future audio problems by getting us some better equipment is to subscribe by being a member. You can do that on our website at greenmajority.ca or go to patreon.com slash greenmajority. So welcome back to the after show. Today is January 22nd, and we're just doing uh, a little after show. I would also take this opportunity to introduce two new volunteers. So um, Brenna, why don't you go first? So Brenna Owen is now joining us as one of our co-hosts. Would you want to just introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm really excited. It's been a few months since I have made any radio. I started at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, so community radio has a really close place in my heart. Um, and I guess most recently on the climate organizing front, I was uh, just in Paris with the Canadian youth delegation at the COP21 uh, climate negotiations. Awesome. So uh, we heard a little bit from you today and uh, and today on the bonus show as well, and you'll be joining us now fairly regularly. So yeah. welcome. Uh, also joining us now as well is uh, Deirdre, and I'm Deirdre, you're going to have to help, help me on your last name again. It's uh, it's Deirdre Luinata. It's, it's, it's long, but it's phonetic, so it makes it a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm joining you from uh, a more scientific background, I guess. I uh, did a biology undergrad where I studied a lot of the topics that, that we kind of cover on the show. Uh, did a lot of climate change work uh, with butterflies and uh, then went on to study uh, industrial activity and its effect on various wildlife in northeastern BC. So um, I'm really excited to be able to start the storytelling of that kind of science and join you guys on this show. Well, I, th- I think I made it perfectly clear that I'm a giant science. I'm a, I was going to say science enthusiast, but I think today <laughs> I sounded a bit like a science militant a little bit. But that's <laughs> that's fine. I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, so um, uh, you and one of our other uh, new volunteers, Sabina, are going to be joining us uh, sort of on the after show for a little while just to get sort of your, your feet wet and then we'll be working you as soon as possible hopefully into the into the live show rotation as well. So for now what I've asked you to do is is to sit in the studio um, and just listen to the conversation and, and uh, let us know if there's anything you think we missed or if you had any additional comments. So uh, I'm going to now throw to you. You're going to lead us uh, in about um, you know eight or so, eight or ten minutes or so just of chatting about uh, other stuff from the show. So, so take it away. What jumped out at you today? Yeah, so um, when you guys are, are talking sometimes it's hard to uh to look at anything except what you're talking about. But I think one thing that really came out of today's show, especially, and and just over the past few years in Canada, is the power of municipalities and the power of the provinces and smaller governments to to enact change and to use their power, which they have, to actually do some really cool things for Canada um, and for their citizens. Um, we've seen it in Burnaby. We've seen it in Quebec. Um, we've seen ing- indigenous communities um, act out, um, and those are just a few of the examples that we've seen over the past few years. We've seen Ontario um, a lot over the past couple of years um, use its own governing power for good um, to keep things like the experimental lakes open. Um, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today without them, so it's kind of cool to see. So I don't know what you guys think of that. I don't know if you noticed when you were talking about that that that's kind of what came out of today's discussion. Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was ranting about this actually as we uh, as we were sort of filing in to do the bonus show, uh, and then Darren was like, "Wait, wait until the wait, wait until the because the the one uh, thing about that municipalities thing that I find so fascinating um, and perhaps difficult to actually balance to some extent uh, is that municipalities unquestionably. Ha- 
I, like there's a, there's a pretty good argument that municipalities will save the world. There's a pretty good argument that that cities and mayors are the ones to actually, you know, they're the most progressive almost entirely. Uh, they have so much control over land use policy and stuff like that, and they can do wonders. Uh, but at the same time, they're also very inherently nimbyistic. Uh, you know, you're, you're never going to see a mayor say, yes, we should blow up our downtown core for a, you know, for a massive geothermal thing. Even if like, even if that geothermal thing would, you know, f- would, would actually say in this weird scenario, power all of Canada. You know, that the, the person in them, there's still, there's a very specific, like, I... I, I appreciate when they are fighting pipelines, uh, but at the same time, I think we need to really accept that those arguments are are a nimbyistic argument, and and they're not really again as as Ma sort of brought it with an actual show. It doesn't it doesn't actually address the real conversation. It's they're still not having the conversation. You know, Nenshi arguing with the mayor of of Montreal about whether or not pipelines should exist uh, are sort of infighting between two people who are who aren't having a real conversation. Sorry, I just have to jump in here that uh, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm also a big fan of uh, Mayor Nenshi, and I understand why he's such a uh, such a popular figure. Um, however, we did, if you go back about two years on the show, I did an episode where I absolutely skewered him because outside of the, in the myriad ways, and don't get me wrong, there's many, many ways he's awesome. He is completely out to lunch when it comes to some oil stuff. And I played some clips of him saying some absolutely hideously out to lunch things a little while ago. So let's be I just let's I just want to caution against, you know, hero or fan worship here uh, in the same way that that I think it's negative to do it around Justin Trudeau. I caution people and I know some very close people to me that are that are huge fans of his, but uh, he's not perfect. And he has some crazy ideas about oil. And and just uh, just don't assume that just because we like him on some stuff that that he's right about everything because he's not. I mean, yeah, he's great, but um, <laughs> obviously no one's perfect. Um, but I think this might be a, a chance for Canada to show that democracy can work because if cities can argue with each other, then we'll bring, I mean, Mayor Nenshi can bring his strengths to the to the playing field and then other mayors um, can bring their own strengths to the playing field. So maybe this is a chance for Canada to show kind of what democracy is made of. I think... You know, it's this is kind of reminding me of, you know, the power of municipalities, but then also um, the power of indigenous communities, um, but also the burden. And it just reminds me of that painful irony that a lot of what is now like the the final kind of frontier or the final um, means to block a pipeline is indigenous communities saying no in the court system and all of the legal resources and the money that is required to go through those processes. And so, um, yeah, it's just an, it's an interesting and, and very painful irony that the, the, that last front is kind of falling to, um, municipalities and, and, and things like that. Certainly like municipalities and, and provincial governments are, are like operating on very different scales. Um, and I do think that Justin Trudeau has shown that he wants to cooperate with municipalities, if only because um, he's not really sure how to proceed. <laughs> and we did talk about that in terms of the First Nations challenge to Kendra Morgan last week. And, you know, now we're seeing, you know, cases or we have been seeing cases that involve uh, legal challenges by municipalities. And, and personally, I think, well, we, we want to draw on all the strengths that we can when we're, we're challenging environmentally threatening projects like these. We, but we, I think you're quite right, Brenna. We can't just look to First Nations or, you know, even municipalities to, to get us there through legal challenges. There's got to be a groundswell mayors really are beholden like any politicians to the people that elect them and i think a lot of the the threads that we've been picking up from nenshi being very sort of pro energy east i mean some in some ways these are things that he has to say his constituency base is calgary and calgary is at the heart of an oil economy so we really need to look, I think, in a very pragmatic way in terms of, you know, where can we draw on these fantastic resources? And some of them are legal challenges, and we should absolutely support our Indigenous people in this country when they want to go that route. Uh, that's really, really important. And we should look at, yeah, how how can Indigenous communities and municipalities be part of the solution while providing, you know, the support they need to move those things forward? Yeah, sorry, just really quickly, that reminds me of the debate um, a little bit in the United States right now where um, uh, Democratic candidate 
Bernie Sanders mentioned that reparations aren't like the only way to move forward um, in terms of um, white supremacy and paying reparations. So like, how do we really practice meaningful solidarity? And it's kind of like putting our money where our mouth is in terms of supporting indigenous people in the courts. Yeah, and, and part of that solidarity too has to be extended to people whose jobs are at risk. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that was actually highlighted, and we didn't get to talk about it on the show, was that a report was done around global trust in institutions and what that means in light of you know growing inequality. And you know, this can be seen as a catalyst for certain types of political movements. You know, saying okay, the current system isn't serving us well. We're seeing growing in income inequality, but it can also catalyze support for you know populist. Uh, folks like Donald Trump um, that really appeal to people whose livelihoods are threatened and take that in a very negative direction. And I just want to caution that we could actually see this kind of thing happening in Canada when people's jobs are being lost, that this can actually mobilize people not to sort of support a positive transition to a, a more fair and sharing economy, um, but can also mobilize people towards very negative political figures like Donald Trump. I want to go back to, to Deirdre and ask you, you know, as a young person, how do you think we can reach people in such a way that we don't see this sort of position shifting towards leaders that propagate that very negative messaging? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, in 10 seconds I think, or less. <laughs> I, think, I think it's possible if we start early, especially because I think without pressure, people are more free to to think about things and to to and open to other people's opinions and I think that's what, what we need I think we need people to be able to listen um, without biases and um, that's what's really going to move us forward but um, this kind of ties back to Justin Trudeau's quote about resourcefulness um, because it, it's not black and white we we can transition in a way that doesn't have to have to happen tomorrow like you guys were saying um, and and we can use the money that's kind of starting to dwindle in oil and gas, but we can use that income to to transition jobs and to transition work to re more renewable sectors. Um, it doesn't happen it doesn't have to happen in one day, but but it can happen and um, and a lot of innovation is happening. Um, I think that's part of what Trudeau was saying. A lot of innovation is already happening in Canada and in Toronto, like the Mars Institute is one of the world's biggest um, institutes of innovation and supports tons, tons of uh, different organizations in Toronto and, and starting to uh, move outside of Toronto as well. Um, I actually recently went to a talk on the innovation that's happening in, t in Toronto, and it's, it's really inspiring. So I think if we get those stories out, then it'll definitely move people to that positive change instead of instead of a negative one. I think so. We're we're running really tight on time, but I just I, I'll give my closing thought, which was you know about a lot of this stuff and and you know tying together a bunch of the threads from today was you know talking about uh, Mayor Neshi and uh, you know people who are and even into a large degree. There's a lot to like about Justin Trudeau, but that doesn't mean he's perfect, and he's definitely not perfect, <laughs> and stuff like that. And then you know, so my my closing thought for the day is the is the idea around you know the idea of sort of justice and mercy, and you can't have perfect both because uh, mercy by definition is a suspension of justice. Right. So it's the things where we like to hold these ideals, but many of these ideals are in conflict. So we can't have, you know, perfect solidarity and perfect democracy. Those ideas are in conflict because they're they're in opposing directions. And it doesn't mean that one of them's wrong. It means that democracy and, and, and solidarity and creating a movement is messy and complicated. It means getting your hands dirty. And and I think that means sometimes arguing stuff out and having a rational discussion and that you're allowed to disagree with people. And we should do that more because it's only by disagreeing that we'll we'll come to deeper understanding of each other. And and that was my frustration of wanting to answer that guy's email today was, you know, here's somebody who thinks what I think and they're really, really wrong. And if they knew what I actually thought, we might actually be able to come up with some good ideas. So that's my closing thought. Uh, have a good uh, green week, everybody. And we'll be back next week with some more from our new volunteers. So thank you again to uh, Brenna and to Deirdre. And uh, see you all later. Bye.